0: Jim, thank you, Bill, for leading us in worship this morning. Appreciate all that you guys do for our church family. We're going to dismiss the kids. They already know not to wait for me because I always forget. But um, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes back in our series in Ecclesiastes, chapter five. If you have your Bibles and like to follow along, I encourage you to turn to Ecclesiastes, chapter five. This book was written by uh, Solomon. He was the uh, son of King David. He was in charge to um, build God's temple in Jerusalem. Uh, as God revealed to him that he was going to lead, God asked, said, what do, would you like from me? And he said, give me wisdom. And so uh, God gave him wisdom, the scriptures declare. And because of that, we have many of the proverbs that we find in the collection of proverbs uh, from Solomon, and we have this book, uh, Ecclesiastes. We also have the, the Song of Solomon. Um, all wisdom literature, we would call this. This is wisdom that we can glean that God has, uh, through His Spirit, revealed to us through, through Solomon and through other writers, uh, human writers throughout history. But uh, as we know, because it has been declared that all Scripture is inspired by God, God breathed. And the church collectively has recognized the 66 books found in the Old and New Testament as God's revealed and special revelation to us. And so we have the privilege this morning to open up God's word and to hear from him. And uh, through Solomon, he's giving us wisdom. And it's my intent this morning that we can all walk out of here with a little more wisdom, (coughs) knowledge that we can practically apply in our lives is ultimately what we're about applying what God has revealed to ourselves in the gospel and then walking out the truths that he's given us is what God desires for us to be transformed more into the image of Jesus with, with that new heart that he's given us at salvation and the only way that new heart is fed and overcomes the old heart of stone is by allowing the spirit to work through us through his sword of the spirit which is his word and praying and coming together and learning and and uh, walking and doing life with uh, other believers, these are the things God has given us as a, as believers, as His Christ disciples, to to grow in Him and to be nurtured in Him. And ultimately, that's what we're here for this morning. Is not just to have a Bible lesson and then everybody checks the box and moves on, but that we would hear from God, and God would work within us, and the Spirit would apply what we have, and what we find, and dig out as truths. They would be applied to our life that we would walk those out so pray with me if you will father god we come before you and just ask dear lord that you would that you would move amongst us father we ask that your spirit would would do what only you oh god can do and discern the thoughts and the intentions of our heart lord and that you would minister to us for those that need convicting that you would convict. For those that need to be encouraged, Lord, that you would encourage, Father, we just ask that you would move in our midst, that in spite of what is proclaimed, that your spirit would, would, would work through the preaching of your word. That you would be honored and glorified in all that is said and done, Lord. Not just in what is said, but, Father, that you'd be honored and glorified as we attempt to apply these things that we learn today in our lives throughout the week and the days to follow. We ask that for your glory's sake, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 20. Brother Wayne covered for me last week, and so you guys had a different sermon. But two weeks ago, we, we ended uh, the sermon in Ecclesiastes 5, and we just had two verses, and that was verses 8 and 9. And it's, we talked about it. Solomon says in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, um, just to kind of catch us up to where we were at, where we at left off last time. last time, is that we should not be surprised by the oppression of the poor and the perversion of justice and righteousness. And he says, look, you shouldn't be surprised because the system is corrupt because ultimately, no matter how good the system is, no matter what word you put on that system, no matter what good intentions are applied to a political or religious system, it always becomes corrupt, and human history has demonstrated that throughout all of human history, not because of the system, but because of the corruptness of people, the depravity of people the the problem of this world that it faces is every time we turn on the television that there's brokenness there's evil there's darkness in this world something's m- massively amiss and and we know that we God has God has revealed to us in his scripture that that stems back from the fall the separation of humanity from God because of our choice Adam and Eve's choice and our choice is to follow to rebel against him and his commands and we are born separate from God that's the depravity. And so Solomon says, you should not be surprised that oppression of the poor are perversions of, of justice and righteousness because we're dealing with corruptness. And he goes on in verses 10 through 20 to describe the, the motivation behind this greed. So he ends up saying, look, the, the fields were meant for everybody. Everyone is supposed to glean from the fields, but ultimately in a corrupt system, it's the king who gets the spoil. And he gives us the motivation for that in verses ten through twenty. And so that's the title of the sermon this morning: is ultimately the, the the teachings that Jesus taught us. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And we see here the motivation for the perversion of uh, the oppression of the poor and the perversion of justice and righteousness is greed. And the first warning that he gives us about the motivations behind uh, corrupt, corrupt people and corrupt leaders is this greed. Greed is this uh, never satisfied um, hunger. Usually in our context, in our society, we would associate greed with wealth and treasure, and that's what Solomon is, but it can be anything. A, a never satisfying and unquenching desire for, for something. Something that leads you to to seek that and only that. And he gives us these warnings of uh, not being motivated by the love of wealth. And the first point is found in verse 10. The love of wealth never satisfies. Pursuing wealth as your mean and purpose in life will never bring you satisfaction in this life. Verse 10. This one, the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile, right? He opens up his so, this book, Ecclesiastes, with his conclusion that all life under the sun in the context of what is just happening under the sun is futile or vain. It has no meaning or purpose. And his attempt as we are going through this, he, we're, we, we're beginning to see that he's trying to draw the reader to understand that Life is truly meaningless and purposeless, purposeless. That's it. One too many syllables. Purposeless, without God at the center of our lives, without God's meaning and purpose and intention uh, in this His creation, we this life is just vain. It's like trying to grasp the wind. And I've said, I think pretty much every time I've stood up here, I just think it's it's ironic that this was written in 10th century B.C., but yet we face a society today that is teaching our children and our ones going to college that there is no God and there is no meaning and purpose outside of what happens under the sun. And therefore we see this the breakdown of society and, and this loss of what God has done in his creation and how we are... Um, made with meaning and purpose and intention. We are in, uh, it's just sad to see that this is still being played out in 2021. These very same things that Solomon is addressing. So this too is futile. The one who loves silver is never satisfied. He goes on in verse 11 telling us the love of wealth makes authentic relationships difficult. If you have wealth it's, it's difficult to have authentic relationships. You see this in verse eleven: when good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. I've read a couple of biographies of. Um, I'm, I'm a sports fan, so I've read a couple of biographies of uh, athletes that I that I love their play, and I wanted to know more more, know more about them. And I, I you hear often hear the story of a a guy that grew up in the inner city who had no money and you know, struggled his whole life, kept, kept his nose clean, was, had the, the innate abilities of athleticism to take him to college and was able to get a college degree. And then, uh, but he was so good in the athletics, football, or basketball, or whatever, that he, they got the big contract for a professional team. And they get all this money. And, and often, their, their, uh, their testimony is, all of a sudden, all these friends and family that I never knew existed we're calling me, saying, hey, friend, old pal, right? Because now they had something they wanted wealth. And so someone with wealth is often suspicious of people, what their intention is. Are you here to make friends with me? Or are you here to make friends with me so I can provide you with money? So the warning is the love of wealth Using wealth as the means for your meaning and purpose in life to acquire more and more wealth. The warning is: first, the love of wealth never satisfies. The second one is: the love of wealth makes authentic relationships difficult. And we see that when good things increase, the one who consumes them multiply. What then is the profit? What is what then is the profit to the owner? Except to gaze at them with his eyes. He's suspicious of everyone and the relationships that he has. The next warning he has for us is the love of wealth makes sleep hard to come by. It makes sleep hard to come by because you're always worried about how much wealth you have or don't have. It can be the opposite. We might be sitting here, you might be like me and say, well, I don't have this problem. I don't have a lot of wealth. But the very opposite can be true. You can be so fixated on not having enough That that's what's ruling your heart. It makes you sleepless. When scripture says we are to put our hope and trust in God. The love of wealth makes sleep hard to come by in verse 12. The sleep of the worker is sweet. Whether he eats little or much. The guy that goes out. Or the woman that goes out and works hard. and works away every day to earn their way in this life they can come home and they can sleep well but the abundance of their rich per- permits him no sleep and why is that because the, his last warning he gives us wealth is fleeting and wealth is fickle fleeting it can be there at one day and it can be gone the next and it's fickle it's always changing anyone that has a 401k account knows exactly what we're talking about you have like Five years of really good stock market gains—you're like, man, I'm gonna have a good, pretty good retirement. I'm looking good, and then a tragedy happens, and all of a sudden, 30% of your wealth disappears overnight. Or the uh, housing market in 2008, when everyone is walking around with these huge equities, uh, you know, all this money in their house, and then all that value is gone within a matter of weeks. Wealth is fleeting. And wealth is fickle. And his warning to us is if you place money or wealth for, at the center of your heart, if that is what you live for, if that is your meaning and purpose, it is going to leave you without meaning and purpose because love or wealth is fleeting and fickle. The love of wealth is. He says this in verses 13 through 17. There is a sickening tragedy, tragedy I have seen under the sun, wealth kept by its owner to his own harm. The wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. There's this person who worked their entire life, gained all this wealth, the intention to hand it down to their, to their son, and it's just gone because of a bad business venture. He was empty-handed. And as he came from his mother's womb, so will he go again, naked as he came. He will not take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. Solomon's already touched on this in in the previous chapters that um, no matter how much wealth you acquire in this life, the ultimate conclusion is, is you will not be able to take it with you after you die. And so if that is your meaning and purpose is to acquire wealth in this life, it is meaningless. It is vain. It is futile. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is sickening. Exactly as he comes... Born naked, so will he go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? If that's what you're struggling for in this life, you're trying to wrestle the wind. It's meaningless and purposeless. What is more in verse 17? He eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. Again, pointing to this fact that someone who has wealth and lives for wealth is suspicious of people, and so therefore uh, uh, a wealthy person can easily become isolated from others because they have lack of trust in their relationships because often the motivations behind people becoming their friend or even in the family dynamic is motivated from greed. And so that person finds himself isolated in darkness all his days, frustration, sickness anger so what is solomon's conclusion for us this morning what is his advice to us here it is verse 18 here is what i have seen to be good so he's contrasting that person who pursues wealth just for the sake of wealth that is his person or her person's person's meaning and purpose in life is just to acquire as much wealth as possible Versus this person here who here is what I've seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun. During the few days of his life, God has given him because that is his reward. See, the difference between the person above and the verses above versus this person he's describing in verses 18 and 19 is that God is in the picture. God is at the center this is a person who understands that in spite of the evil and the darkness that we see, we know that God is sovereignly working out His good pleasure in His creation, and we understand that, and so we seek to live for Him in the New Testament context through the gospel. We can't live with Him outside of the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come to save those who are sinners and be able to be reconciled back to our God through what the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is that in which God adopts us into his family. We are pulled out of the first Adam and separated from God and added and adopted into the family of God. The good news that Jesus has come to seek and to save those who are lost is the gospel. He died for you. He took the penalty upon himself on the cross for the sins that you had. He was buried because that is the the consequence of a sin is death. But because he was God in the flesh, and because the, God's wrath and judgment was completely satisfied in Jesus, he was able to rise from the grave three days later, demonstrating his, his victory over death, the curse that happened in the, after the fall in, garden, in the garden. Jesus had victory over that. That is the good news. And as we believe and trust in this gospel, as we trust that Jesus alone is my means in which I can be reconciled to God, that I abandon hope in all other things and trust in what Christ has accomplished, we have nothing to offer when it comes to salvation other than what the belief that Christ has died for us. As we do that, as we trust as we make that saving encounter with Jesus and believe by faith, the promise is is that the Spirit of God makes us a, a new creation, gives us a new heart, that heart that's separated from God is still with us, but, but, we, but we have this new heart as we proclaim and, and we hear and receive and believe on Jesus. The promise is this new heart is given to us and the Spirit of God dwells within us to, to make us more conformed to, to what He originally desired for us, a life of obedience and holiness and a life of worship towards Him and not our, our own worship of ourselves and the things we desire. That's the New Testament context in which how we can have God in our picture, how we can have God in our, the center of our lives, that we can have meaning and purpose in this world in spite of the, the stuff that's going on because God is at the center. And the more we learn to walk and yield to him and for his desire for us, the more meaning and purpose we find. This person in verse 18 can enjoy the things of life. Whatever is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good, and all the labor. You can even enjoy your job. I love being a pastor. Five days a week I have to do something else that I don't like so much, but I love being a pastor. And I know many of you have jobs that you love to do, that God specifically, you know. You know, it's, we can enjoy the things God has given us because he's the giver of all that is good. The difference is, is we recognize that it comes from God. And we don't earn it and work for it in and of ourselves and the self-righteousness and the self-accomplishment. We recognize God for the giver of all that is good. Furthermore, in verse 19, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has allowed him to enjoy them. Uh, take his reward and rejoice in his labor. And so he's saying, even riches and wealth, someone who has riches and wealth, take, being a Christian is not a vow of being poor. You can have riches and wealth and, and be a, be a, have God at the center of your life, and that is good because you recognize that those, that wealth comes from God because he's at the center of your life. And you can enjoy them as well. You can enjoy the riches and wealth he's given you. Because God is at the center. Ultimately, he says and there at the end of verse 19, this is a gift of God. We can rejoice in that, in our labors, because God is at the center. So what is the difference between the person, starting in verse 17 and above, to the person verses 18 and 19? It's loving God and not wealth. Loving God first. Putting God on the throne of our hearts. Loving God and not wealth. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. Verse 20. For he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Again, we've talked about what the heart means. The heart is the the picture of the, the, the our unique persons, our spirit, our soul, who we make, who makes Jared Jared and Sue Sue and Laura Lee, Laura Lee. We're unique and individually designed by our Creator God. And He's designed us to enjoy Him, to enjoy God forever. And it says in Scripture that He desires to give us the joys of our heart. But the discerning part of this walk that we walk with God and having God at the center is discerning where we're placing our heart or where we're allowing our heart to, what we're allowing our heart to rule, by, be ruled by, I should say. And so that's the New Testament context for us today. You might be sitting and going, well, I don't have a problem with wealth because I don't have any. But, but this is just a, a demonstration of what, anything that could be on the throne of your heart that is not God. It's called heart idols. Jesus taught about that in his earthly ministry. In Matthew 19, verses 16 through 18 or 19 um, is the record of a, a young man, a rich young man, and he came to Jesus and he asked these questions in Matthew nineteen, verse sixteen. It says this, just then someone came up and asked him, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Right? If that's the question you're asking in your life, that's a good question to be asking. Because that means you're seeking. You, have, you understand that outside of what's happening under the sun, is there more meaning and purpose to this life than just going to school, going to work, raising a family, and then dying and turning into worm feed? And he asked the Messiah, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? He said to him, there's only one who is good. Pointing, Jesus is pointing back to God. And if you want to enter into life, this is what you need to do. Keep the commandments. The capstone of those commandments are the ten commandments given to, to Moses, to the Jewish people. And we we know most of them, right? Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit false witness, or thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? All these things that are God's standard to demonstrate to us as humanity his standard of holiness, who he truly is. He is holy and without sin. And to keep a relationship with him by following the law, this is the standard you must meet he gave to the Jewish people. But as we discussed in our series on Galatians, God's true intention was to demonstrate to humanity that there is no way we can keep his standard because we are unholy. We are in sin. And this person, this rich young ruler comes to the Messiah and asks him, what must I do? And he says, keep the commandments. And let's see how this story plays out. Which ones? The young ruler asks him. And Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother and love yourself, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is his response. I've kept all these things. The young man told him. So this is a picture of someone who has a very self-righteous attitude. His idol in his heart is self-righteousness. He's trying to justify himself in the eyes of a holy God by him thinking that he's met all these standards. But Jesus, being God, knows his heart, and so he drills down to what's truly going on here. What do I still lack? This is Jesus' response. If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go and sell your belongings and give them to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And when the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus knew exactly what was going on in this young man's heart, where he was lacking and that was his greed, that he loved his possessions and his wealth more than he loved God. Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Verses 19 and 20, he's delivering this sermon and he says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. We've talked about that, right? Having that eternal perspective that to sacrifice a little in this world and, and the creaturely comforts of this world for the gain of the kingdom is a far better reward than what we can ever do in this world. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. Right? That wealth of this earth is fickle and fleeting. It can be gone tomorrow by a simple thief. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What do you treasure? That's really what's going on. What is it that you live for maybe it's not wealth but all of us have this tendency to build up our own heart idols things that are that we live for that is not of God that is not God heart idols are spoken of in Ezekiel 14 we think of idols as like some golden bronze right image that's crafted and people bowing down to it but but what really god speaks of when he says thou shalt not have any idols or worship any idols it's it's what what we live for what we give our time and attention and worship to and it doesn't have to be something physical but it's this idol of the heart that is spoken of in ezekiel 14 let me just read this for you then the word of the lord came to me son of man these men have set up idols in their hearts And have put their sinful stumbling blocks in front of themselves. He said, they set up these things in their hearts that are not me. They're living their life and their meaning and purpose is found in what's ruling and reigning on their hearts. And it's providing, it's making a sinful stumbling block for them to worship the one and true God. So I actually let them inquire of me. So this thing of heart idols, it can be wealth, but it can be other things. The world, meaning an excessive desire to have the world's goods, either that's money or or material belongings or, or whatever, that can be what we live for instead of allowing God to rule and reign our hearts. The, the, the desire to have more of the world's goods, rules and reigns or can rule and reign our heart. Another one is self. Paul writes to Titus and says, watch out for these lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, the ones who seek pleasure, who will manipulate people to be able to have their pleasure, be on, be aware of those, to the love pleasure of this world more than the lovers of God. Other people can be hard idols. When we put too much fear on love or trust in people and not God, and so that can be even, I mean, all these things can be good things. They're not, just you know they can be good and of God and as long as we have a healthy perspective and allow God to be on the throne of our heart and he is first and foremost in our lives right many of these things are can be enjoyed but often these things can overtake God's position in our lives other people even our spouses our family where we do this live for our family and that's it instead of Putting God on the throne, it's about putting your spouse on the throne. Everybody pray for Tara. She really struggles with that one. Not. Just kidding. She doesn't at all. But other people can be what we live for. And their approval of other people. Always striving to please others. And that's what you end up living for instead of striving to please God. Other self righteousness. Self righteousness is uh, the, the example is that rich young ruler trying to establish ourselves in our in our prayers and repentances and blameless living, and so we we come to this point where, where all we live for is well, how good we are and how how many how many things we don't do. And so we begin to see ourselves as acceptable to God because of our our own self-righteousness instead of relying on the righteousness of Christ alone and understanding we are all beggars. Given this wonderful gift of salvation, not through our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. This is what we call legalism. Where we try to establish our worth to a holy God with what we don't do. And then we judge others. They don't live up to our standard. That can be an idol of our heart. Innate gifts from God, those are the things that are naturally given. Maybe you might have a good voice or be gifted to um, be very intelligent or have a lot of strength and be an athlete. And so that's what you live for. I remember being in high school. uh, Travis and I were talking about that earlier today. He's from a town close to mine, and I live for football. That was my identity. And I was just some little kid in a pond thinking that I was all that because of you know there wasn't a lot of competition. So you've had a little bit of an ounce of athleticism and everybody thought you were great. And that was my identity, what people thought of my athleticism. And that was the idol of my heart. Or maybe it's your, your voice or whatever God has innately given you, your intelligence, just relying completely on that allowing your your rational thought to be ruling and reigning in your heart instead of God and bowing the knee to what he's given to us in his special and revealed word. How about uh, ease of life? That temptation to build a life of ease and quietness and just have our own contentment. And that often means isolation from other people. I went up to Montana last week and it, It was really hard to come home. It was so beautiful up there. Oh, my soul. It's so pretty up there. And it could be so easy to get lost up there. And Gracie drew the short straw, and she had to drive up with her dad. We took two cars. So she had to drive up with me. And uh, we were looking at this beauty all around us. And I said, man, Gracie, I keep having this thought that it would be so nice just to sell everything and, and to buy a cabin in the woods and just be by myself and and just enjoy this beautiful creation and just I said but the problem is is God calls us to relationships and God calls us to community and God calls us to proclaim the gospel and I can't do that if I'm by myself in the woods that can be an easily uh, idol of the heart it's relationships and community are difficult things but that's what God calls us to to love one another etc Escapism, people who concoct imaginary, fictitious scenarios. They don't like the world that they live in, and so they're constantly in their brain uh, with this ease of life and creating this magical, fantasized world where people look up to them and they're prominent, and that's where they live. They're escaping the realities of where God has placed them. That could be an idol of the heart, allowing your fantasy and where you want to be to rule and reign instead of allowing God to use you where you're at in this world, where you're at and who you're encountering. And worship of people in high places can be the idol, an idol of our hearts, even today. Again, all these things can be good things if we keep the right perspective, if God is first. But when we put presidents on the throne of our heart, or political parties, on the throne of our heart, as the means to answer the ills of society, we have an idol of the heart. Because it is God who needs to rule and to reign our heart. Or we get, God forbid, the diagnosis of a, a cancer and a surgeon goes in there and just masterfully cuts away the cancer and he declares to you after you awake, you're free of cancer. And all of a sudden that person becomes your person you worship. That he did it. Instead of ultimately understanding that it was God who gave that person the abilities and the intelligence and the skill to be able to do that for you. Even ministers or pastors can become idols of the heart. When I was in Bible college there, um, there was just this huge influx of what we now call celebrity, celebrity pastors, where as the internet began to expound and these really gifted men began to um, you know, live cast their sermons and all that stuff, they begin to gain lots of followers. And so people were at home listening to this person and just thinking this guy's just amazing, gifted of God. And, and truly they are and truly they were. But, but suddenly that person became their all in all. Instead of God being there all in all, it's that person and their teachings. And and as long as that person says it, then it's truth. And so they're now they're they're allowing that person to rule their heart, to be the discerning wisdom in their lives, instead of God and his his revealed word and the Holy Spirit who desires to t- bring us into all truth through the word. And then during that time we've seen, I've seen many of those celebrity pastors fall morally. and their ministries have left a wake destruction of wrecked lives of wrecked faith because people were placing their faith and living putting a person a pastor on their hearts allowing them to say where god only god should be it should be god ruling and reigning in their hearts so so what how do we escape this this this, uh, John Calvin famously said this, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Just perpetually spewing out idols. These things that we latch onto in this world instead of God. And so what is our escape, our way of escape? And I think Paul's letter to the Thessalonians gives us some hope here. First Thessalonians chapter 1, he's Right to this church. Paul went into Thessalonica, and he, he went to the synagogue there, and he proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, and many people believed, and the church was formed, but also many people became very angry. Paul was beaten and whipped and chased out of town, forced to leave this church uh, quickly. He's in Athens, and he's worried about this church, and So he sends uh, some messengers up there to see what's going on and he gets a good report back that the believers that believed and trusted in Christ, the Spirit of God is working strongly amongst them and their faith is being declared throughout the world and it was God doing this amazing thing in Thessalonica and Paul's so encouraged by that. But he gives us the the answer to how do we escape our heart idols because it's ultimately about the heart, right? What we treasure is what we worship. What we treasure is what we worship. And so uh, he says in 1 Thessalonians 9, For they themselves, these other people throughout the world, he said he'd come into a town, he wants to tell these people about the faith of the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, and, and um, they said we already know about them because they're, what they're doing and their, their perseverance in the face of persecution is being made well known throughout the world. He says, For they, they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. And this is what this, these people have done. When they heard the gospel message, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It's that idea of repentance that we often talk about. Jesus or Paul came into the synagogue. He proclaimed Jesus as a Messiah. He proclaimed the way in which one is uh, reconciled to God is not through the keeping of the law, but to trust in Christ's accomplished work alone. He proclaimed the gospel over and over again. These people were saved. So they had a change of mind. They were, went into that synagogue that morning trying to appease God through keeping the law. They were presented with the gospel. They had a change of mind that ended up changing the direction of their faith walk. They no longer tried to appease God through the law, but through following Jesus. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So how do we escape our heart idols? It's, I pray everyone in this room has had that salvific encounter with Jesus where you were convicted by the spirit of your need to repent, have a change of mind of what you were previously trying to reconcile yourself with God with, and instead trust in Christ and his accomplished work alone. And in doing that, the promise of Scripture is that the Spirit comes upon us, regenerates us, makes us a new creation in Christ. He indwells us and desires to live on us. He's given us a new heart, that old heart we're still struggling with, but the promise of glorification that is to come, that we will not be dealing with this old heart for all of eternity. That old heart will finally be dead. And we will rule and reign with our God for all of eternity And these people turned to God from their idols to wait for His Son, Jesus, who was raised from the dead, showing victory over the curse. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath, God's judgment upon sin. He's rescued us, even though we deserve it. His love has been extended to us by placing our faith in Christ alone. But as we begin to walk with the lord we quickly understand that this thing idea of an encountering jesus and repenting and turning and walking following after him is not just a one-time thing it's a daily thing because we have this old heart who wants to put the idols of the heart on the throne and we constantly daily have to right turn to god and allow him to rule our hearts allow him to reign and put to death the idols of our hearts the desire to pull us away and be a stumbling block for our desire to follow after God it's a daily time of going to the cross preaching the cross to yourself and trusting in God and allowing him giving him the time to to say I want you to rule and reign my heart I see these other things that are competing and I want them dead. God, please help me. Please rule. The love, so that's what we are to do on a daily basis. To get rid of our heart idols, it's got to be a constant daily. If you're like me, (laughs) minute by minute, right? I mess up often. But my hope is the more mature I get in in my walk, the the more I need to recognize when I step off off the path and go back to this. Lord, I just acted out in my flesh right now. I don't want that to be happening. Please, please help me walk and live for you. And in that, those idols of the heart are killed away. So we have this list of things, these warnings that Solomon gave us. The love of wealth never satisfies. The love of wealth makes us authentic, or makes authentic relationships difficult. The love of wealth makes sleep hard to come by. Wealth is fleeting and fickle. But hopefully, we've learned by now that it can't, it's not just wealth, right? You can put any whatever your heart idol may be. You can put that there. The love of blank never satisfies a lie but praise be to God the love of Jesus always satisfies the love of Jesus always satisfies Jesus said I am the bread of life Jesus told them no one comes to me or no one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again the love of Jesus Satisfies The love of Jesus makes authentic relationships eternally meaningful. Not more difficult, but meaningful. Jesus said, if if I give you a new commandment, love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Every relationship God has allowed us to have is a meaningful, it can be eternally. I have to be chained to the pulpit now. I can't walk around can be eternally significant. Those relationships God has given us is a person who needs Jesus, who needs to hear about Jesus, who needs to see Jesus lived out. It makes The love of Jesus makes our relationships eternally meaningful and impactful. That's in John 13. The love of Jesus brings rest to the soul. Instead of the love of wealth bringing restlessness... The love of Jesus brings rest to the soul. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, Jesus says in Matthew 11. This is the first verse my pastor, after I got saved, made me memorize. I always smile when I come to this verse. Because it reminds me of that moment when the gospel was preached and the Holy Spirit convicted me of my need to receive Jesus. And as I made that a transaction of faith, that guilt of sin was lifted from my shoulders. That guilt that I've had, that I had in my entire life was lifted. And this verse talks to us about this. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. It's a, a thing back in the day. Two oxen would be hooked up to a yoke, and the two would, would pull a, a, a plow. And he says, take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light the love of Jesus is steadfast and immutable the love of the world's treasures are fickle and fleeting but the love of Jesus is steadfast and unchanging it's his love demonstrated to us. It's a gift, this thing of grace is unmerited favor. It's given to us. We we don't do anything to earn it. And it's a love that is steadfast, unmoving, unchanging. Paul writes about Christ's love in Romans 8. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Church, I don't know what's going to be happening in the future, but I do know this. Christ's love for you will never change. I don't know what's the persecution that we'll be facing a year from now, but I do know that God's love for us, extended to us in Christ Jesus, will never change. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heart, nor depth. I think that's a pretty exhaustive list. Nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our hope. That is our meaning and purpose in this life put God on the throne of our hearts to live for him and rest in his love. So as we do so, that he through us, we may be able to love others as he has loved us. And by that, people will know that we are his disciples. That is our meaning and purpose, church. I pray that if you're here today and you've never encountered Jesus in the saving way, that today would be the day that you would abandon hope and all else and that you'd be reconciled to God through believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for he is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one is reconciled to God except for believing and trusting in Christ's accomplished work the scriptures declare in John fourteen six. We have this moment of uh, imitation song where we sing to God and we deal individually with, with God, but this is also a moment for you to be able to exercise your, um, to take action upon your decision to maybe accept Jesus as your Savior, to believe and trust in Him, to be reconciled to Him, to step out and say, "I want to follow Jesus," be baptized because you desire to live for him, this is a moment when you can take that step and come forward. And and if you need to know more and have questions, I'd love to be able to show you from the word how this can be a reality for you, how you can be pulled out of sin and separation from your God and be reconciled to him through Jesus. It would be my distinct honor to do so. Church, let's, let's endeavor to to live this out. Let's endeavor to inspect our our hearts this week and pray to him and ask God to reveal to us the idols that might be on our heart that are not of God and ask him through the power of the spirit that they would be slain, that they would be toppled and that Christ Jesus, the spirit of Christ Jesus would rule and reign us, that we may be used for his glory in this world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We love you because you first loved us. We're so grateful for the gospel, God. We're so grateful that you've empowered us to live this life you've called us to. And we acknowledge this morning, Lord, that if in and of ourselves, left to ourselves, we would be hopeless. But you've done this for us, God, and help us to do what is often the simplest thing to be said, but the hardest thing to do. Help us to... Allow Jesus, the Lord Jesus, to be enthroned upon our hearts, God. Help us to walk for him and for his glory. And we ask it in his name. Amen.